Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being, reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Server Member Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Metta Hour with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network and features interviews with the top leaders, teachers, and thinkers of the mindfulness movement and beyond. For more information, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and today I'm joined by Dr. Judd Brewer, MD, PhD. That's a lot of letters. <laughs> Judd is a thought leader in the field of habit change and the science of self-mastery, having combined over 20 years of experience with mindfulness training with his scientific research. He's the Director of Research and Innovation at the Mindfulness Center and Associate Professor in Psychiatry at the School of Medicine at Brown University. A psychiatrist and internationally known expert in mindfulness training for addictions, Judd has developed and tested mindfulness programs for habit change, including both in-person and app-based treatments for smoking, emotional eating, and anxiety. He's also studied the underlying neural mechanisms of mindfulness using standard and real-time fMRI and EEG neurofeedback. Judd is the author of The Craving Mind, From Cigarettes to Smartphones to Love, why we get hooked, and how we can break bad habits. And his work has been featured on 60 Minutes, TED with over 12 million views, Time Magazine, Forbes, BBC, NPR, Al Jazeera, and Business Week, to name a few. Welcome, Judd, to the Meta Hour. Thanks for having me. It's always a great delight to talk to you. Uh, we've known each other for many years. And we've taught together and sat together. It's um, it's great to uh, have you in this forum. So I thought it would be nice to begin with a little background for listeners who aren't familiar with your story. If you can just talk about 
I first came to the world of meditation and how that came to be such a cornerstone for your work. Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, <laughs> I guess it all started through the window of suffering. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> I'd gone through a pretty bad relationship breakup right before medical school and started meditating my first day of medical school. Mm -hmm. It was a new beginning for me and uh, figured it try something new. And lo and behold, it was really helpful. <laughs> I went through medical school, helped me with stress and um, helped me kind of learn how my own mind worked, which was really helpful. And it was, in fact, it was so life-changing for me that I shifted my entire career from studying molecular biology to um, studying mindfulness. I, I wanted to understand how this was actually working to help people change behaviors, how it was working in the brain. And I also saw just how big of an issue it was. I would train to be an addiction psychiatrist and was seeing that the standard treatments that we had just, you know, they, they weren't meeting the standards that I would like to see. I think a lot of people were still suffering with some of the standard techniques that, and, and medicines that we had. And it seems that the ancient Buddhist psychologists were actually speaking the same language as my patients. And I really didn't think that that could be coincidental. And so wanted to really dive into that more from a scientific standpoint. So I could also see how we could help, you know, help our patients um, and, and ourselves. So that's, that's kind of the short story and how it got started. So you started with a mindfulness meditation. That was your introduction. Yeah, I, I read some of John Kabat-Zinn's Full Catastrophe Living and um, started listening to the cassette tapes that were... Do you mm -hmm. remember what those are, cassette tapes? I do uh, remember. <laughs> so this was back in the mid-90s. I uh, started listening to those and actually <laughs> for the first six months or so would fall asleep <laughs> regularly trying to learn to meditate. And then I, I joined a... Uh, community asanga in St. Louis, where I was in medical school, which happened to be led by a, a Theravada um, practitioner. I didn't even know there were different types of, mm -hmm. of meditation. It was kind of like Christianity. You know, there's, there's, there's Jesus, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, boy. Oh, evangelical. Oh, Catholic. Oh, wow. Interesting. And mm -hmm. I started later learned that uh, the Buddhists had similar you know, some of the different schools. And so I had ended up uh, inadvertently in, in one of those. And actually my first week-long meditation retreat was with uh, Bhante Gunaratna mm -hmm. from the Theravadan tradition. I find it actually fascinating that you spent that six months learning through tapes because uh, aside from thinking of you as a friend and, you know, colleague, I think of you as a kind of very creative um, disseminator of the teaching through apps you know, and so uh, for those people who don't have a physical teacher near at hand or whose life circumstances such that uh, they can't go off and do a retreat or, or even a class necessarily right away, um, it's such a vital and interesting form. Yes, and boy, that was 20 years later. I had no idea. It was an accidental tourist. <laughs> as mm -hmm. we, you know, as I was doing the research, um, we were starting to find some pretty significant results. Like our first study with smoking, we found that there were five times better quit rates with mindfulness training than cognitive therapy. Mm -hmm. And at the time it, it happened, um, this is around 2012, one of my career mentors at Yale, uh, Kathy Carroll, she'd been looking at disseminating cognitive behavioral therapy and had started trying it out or delivering it via the web. And I was thinking, well, you know, here are apps, you know, that are starting to be developed. People are playing around in this territory. So let's let's play with this because that's even more mobile than the web is. Uh, so we were, that was what, a long time ago now, um, one of the early, early folks to just start playing in that space. And it turned out to be pretty useful. And, you know, we've now seen an explosion of a different uh, of a bunch of different types of, you know, basic training, for example, for, mm -hmm. uh, for meditation, like the 10% happier app that, uh, you are mm -hmm. <laughs> well familiar with. It's mm -hmm. a great example of that. Um, and we've kind of taken this in a clinical direction, finding specific pain points 
you know, like, like you mentioned with smoking and with stress eating and with anxiety uh, as a way to take those, those suffering doors kind of like I had taken as a way to uh, really engage people in a specific way, which then might uh, generalize into being more interested in learning practices in general where they might uh, use a, an app like 10% Happier. I just find it so interesting, you know, because in some ways I had a very old-fashioned kind of experience. I went off to India, you know, to learn how to meditate. I had a physical mm-hmm. teacher and a community, physical community, and we're actually, you know, so many of my closest friends I met at my first retreat. Um, and to see the, really the effectiveness of a, a more remote or virtual means of delivery, I, I just find it so interesting. Yeah, it really is. And it still feels like the Wild West. You know, we've been doing this for seven, eight years now, and it still feels like early, you know, early going and early days, just really seeing what's helpful. And, you know, I've had a, uh, I, I find it very personally beneficial to have a teacher. You know, I started working with a teacher back in the late 90s. And um, like you said, not everybody has access to those. And I didn't at the beginning. Uh, so this is where even bringing in things like online communities and um, live weekly groups. So we've actually incorporated some of these concepts into our apps themselves. Um, so, for example, anybody that joins one of our app-based trainings has access. Like I lead a, a group um, every Wednesday at noon Eastern time uh, via Zoom, where anybody from mm-hmm. anywhere in the world can join us uh, with the idea that we can have some you know, some access to people teaching uh, or answering questions or things like that. Um, and also an online community, I think, Sangha community is really, really important. And there are, you know, there are hybrid ways that we're starting to explore that might provide more people access uh, than having, having to live close to a teacher or close to a retreat center. That's great. Uh, I want to talk about your book in a minute, but first I want to talk about my book that I'm working on, um, uh, because it, it, there are many things about your work that um, I think are are really uh, are things I'm trying to understand more fully and to express. So, um, working on a book about mindfulness, loving kindness, and social change, and I'm defining social change very broadly, including art and, you know, creative expression and things like that. But sort of like the the move from the inner experience of greater peace and freedom to the outer expression um, in the world. And I'm working right now on a chapter about interconnection and a vision of life where we see ourselves as intricately connected with with life itself, with others. Um with other beings, with the planet, and so on. And so uh, part of my Buddhist training, of course, is um, you start by looking at the problem. You know, if you're talking about connection, you really start by looking at disconnection because so many people are coming from that place. That's why they seek another view or another way of understanding. And so um, I had two elements to that which made me think very much of of your work. One was um, the internal consequence of being so disconnected and how much loneliness there seems to be. You know, I keep reading that it's an epidemic and an addiction and addictive behavior and things like that coming from that place of, of disconnection. So maybe we can start there. I'd be happy to. You know, and I think at a very simple or core level, you know, disconnection or when we're feeling lonely uh, has an embodied experience of, you know, of separateness, of closed down. Uh, And interestingly, with what we're seeing with addiction and addictive behaviors, even social media, is that there's a lot of perpetuation of that closed downness inadvertently through um, these, these dopamine hits that come from novelty and excitement. And there's this 
piece around, you know, getting somebody excited about how many likes they got or how many mm-hmm. retweets or, you know, something like that, that, that has this um, quality to it that's exciting. But when we look at it, there's a, actually an agitation and a contracted quality to it itself, which is the same neurochemicals, at least some of the same ones as getting, anticipating using cocaine, for example. There's that, uh, the Jones and for a hit. Mm-hmm. Well, we could be Jones and for a like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's, and it's not, it's not different. And that actually perpetuates the separateness because we're closed down. And in fact, my lab has been looking at brain regions that are involved in that, you know, that caught upness when we're caught up in a craving or when we're caught up even in, in rumination, like, oh no, is, you know, am I, am I missing out on what everybody else is doing? You know, that whole Mm -hmm. new phenomenon of FOMO, you Mm -hmm. know, you're missing out. Mm -hmm. All of that stuff activates um, this self-referential brain network. And that activation, people report that that actually correlates with, with a closed quality of experience. Mm. In contrast, you know, we found specifically studying things like loving kindness. Mm. Well, it doesn't, it feels open. It feels connected. And in those, you know, those same brain regions get quiet. They, they deactivate when people are feeling connected, when they're feeling open, when they're practicing loving kindness. And so, you know, we can even, we can see this on an experiential level where we feel closed or caught up. And we can feel this on an experiential level when we feel open or kind or connected. And we even see this uh, with the brain correlates where we see, you know, brain activity correlating with those things. So it's, it's really been a, a fascinating journey just to map that out experientially. That's so interesting because, you know, you're also making me think of um, in the Buddhist psychology when um, loving kindness as a quality of connection is differentiated from its near enemy, which is attachment. And attachment, of course, can mean many things, and especially in current Western psychological theory. But um, in that particular Buddhist sense, it, it really is a sort of tunnel vision and seeking to control and uh, something very narrow. And uh, one of the confusions we have about love or loving kindness is that it's, it's, it's open. It's about spaciousness. Um, and that's not sort of the cultural norm. You know, we think of it as fixation, really, uh, when we're in love. You know, we're fixated. We're obsessed. Uh, we're not open. And, and yet, I think the actual experience of loving kindness is exactly as you describe. It's about openness and spaciousness. Yes, absolutely. And and if it matters, uh, we actually have some brain data that supports that oh, pretty well. It matters to me. Good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and there's actually some other. There's a research group that studied uh, romantic love, and they actually found that um, the higher somebody scored on an obsessive love scale, mm-hmm. the higher, the more activated their posterior cingulate cortex was part of this default mode network. And the, so the more people were caught up in a romantic relationship, even in a stable, like long-term romantic relationship, the more they, they were activating like the me, me, me part of the self. Oh, how funny. Uh, self-referential network. Yeah. Uh, and that's the same brain region that gets really quiet when we're practicing love and kindness. So those <laughs> two seem to be, you know, opposites. We can't be attached <laughs> and letting go at the same time. Right. Do you find, do you feel that there's an epidemic of loneliness? I mean, I keep reading this and I don't know if life is really that different for people or maybe it is. Well, I would say just walking down the street, and you probably see this in New York City as well as anywhere else, how many people are walking down the street kind of in a closed down posture Mm -hmm. where their head is looking down at a certain device? Yeah. (laughs) 
and so I would say that's really different than just walking down the street, making eye contact with people. Mm-hmm. Even if it's just, you know, if it's even just looking around, not trying to make eye contact. But I would say I, it feels very different to me when just walking down the street in New York City, just looking around versus being very fixated on my device. So that's one thing that I would say is different only in the last seven or eight years. Uh, it's actually a, <laughs> a, a mass experiment uh, where these things have been introduced, and we, we have no idea how it's going to go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's, there's been a bit written about that in terms of these things. You know, Sherry Turkle wrote a great book called Alone Together, mm-hmm. where the more connected we are, the, the less connected we actually are. Because you know, even though we're, we can be tethered via the Internet, it doesn't mean that we're actually uh, connected uh, emotionally and spiritually and, and don't have that feeling of connection. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's one piece that's relatively new onto the scene that's probably affecting things quite a bit. Well, it's interesting because somebody, I was talking to somebody who was like a, a New Yorker and a, a New York lover, you know, and and she was saying that I used to be so much happier living in New York because you could just have these conversations with people. Like you'd sit down next to somebody in a train or, you know, you'd be waiting online together and, and uh, I'd meet so many interesting people that weren't really a part of my ordinary life and and uh, it was so great. And now no one talks to one another because everyone's yeah. on their phone and they're just looking down. So I could see how it could be a significant contributor. Yeah. And it almost feels like we're interrupting somebody, even if they're just looking at cute pictures of puppy on, puppies on Instagram or something. Uh-huh. Like, oh, I don't mean to disturb you with your very important business. But... <laughs> right. Leave me alone. I'm connecting. I'm busy connecting. <laughs> So the external manifestation of that kind of disconnection, um, which I'm writing about, is is a, a kind of rigid sense of us versus them or self and other. And um, that certainly seems pervasive in the culture right now and particularly in the political landscape. And uh, we had a conversation about this, you and I, some years ago. We began the conversation some years ago when the immigration ban was initiated. And here's something you wrote me at the time. I feel like there's an even stronger need to transform this communal energy from hate to love, from separation to connection. This morning it arose that this may be where my personal practice comes together with my lab's research, exploring the experience of contraction versus expansion and how that manifests in the world in so many ways. Which feels, I mean, that really feels like a crisis uh, that we're undergoing. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it, and boy, that was years ago. We've been exploring this a lot more, and even just experientially, you know, it's we've seen this a lot where it's it's just very easy to kind of hit that fear button mm-hmm. on people's um, in people's brains, so to speak whether it's via social media or the news or whatever. And that, that just kind of shuts down the connection because we go into survival mode. And, you know, if you think about survival mode, it's about contracting down and protecting our vital organs. literally. Mm-hmm. So it might even be looping into these, these survival pieces in a way that can kind of manipulate us mm-hmm. uh, at, at its worst. Um, and you know, we've we've seen lots of reports around how that's being intentionally ma- manipulated for people's you know specific agendas. Mm-hmm. And if we're not aware of how this you know how this operates in our brain, we're going to be susceptible to it and wake up and say, "Why am I so afraid? Why am I so disconnected?" Mm-hmm. Uh, but even recognizing the process and just understanding what it feels like experientially already puts us in a, in a much better place. Uh, so for example, we just was uh, leading a weekend um, benefit retreat for my lab. And in the group, we just had people do a, a very simple practice to see if they could tap into what this open versus closed quality of experience felt mm-hmm. like. 
uh, where we just had asked them a question, you know, identify its time. And we went through a number of categories, but one of them was like when a friend uh, did something kind for you and just feel what it feels like. And then rate, you know, on a negative 10 to positive 10 scale, does it feel open or, you know, close is negative 10 and open is positive 10. And then we had them go through, you know, when they did something unkind to you um, and just, you know, just seeing how easy it was for people to drop into that experience of what it feels like, you know, to be open or closed. We found that that language was very accessible for people. Um, but that's really the, you know, the closed tracks with disconnection. It tracks with separateness um, and it also tracks in some manner with, um, with addiction where, cause there's that contracted quality to it. And mm-hmm. it, it, so it seems that experientially at a very basic level you know, and everybody could, you know, tap into this. We, it was, it was a very simple experiment to do. And we saw pretty clear results where, you know, people could really tap into what it feels like to be open versus closed and very simple things could provoke it. Like, you know, remember a time when somebody was kind versus unkind, that type of thing. So is part of the problem we have that the feeling of being closed also feels a little secure or protected and to be open is scarier in itself? I think that's part of it from a very basic level. And this is where it, it, you know, if we don't step back and ask, you know, is this really dangerous or who, who, you know, what am I protecting? Mm -hmm. Uh, We can just, easily fall into these, into these habit patterns. Mm-hmm. But then when we start looking at a deeper level, you know, well, who, who, who am I protecting? Is it some self-concept? You know, if somebody says something that I disagree with politically, do I close down because I'm attached to a certain political mm-hmm. concept? And right there, you know, just because I disagree with somebody politically doesn't mean that I'm, I'm in danger. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in those moments, we can stop and recognize, oh, here's what it feels like to be attached to a view and how it's actually leading me, me to be closed down instead of turning toward and asking, oh, wow, look, our views differ. That's interesting. Tell me more when we're open and we're connected. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't even matter as much what the view is it matters more that we're connected in understanding each other. I'm going to ask you a question that I'm often asked, you know, uh, myself, which is um, basically what about when you are on the receiving end of this rigid view of self versus other? It's like if I'm talking about compassion for all beings, you know, somebody inevitably writes and says, well, why should I have compassion for someone who doesn't feel I have the right to exist, you know, because I'm gay, because I'm trans, because I'm different, something like that. And, um, you know, uh, that description, you know, which I really agree with in terms of uh, not buying into our own fears is one thing when where the one that is expressing or experiencing dislike or hatred it's another challenge when we're receiving it from someone else. It is. It's a, it's a huge challenge. So do you want to geek out about this? Yes. Oh, let's do it. Biology? <laughs> yes. Oh, please. <laughs> <laughs> so here I would say, and I'm not saying this is easy, Yeah. but I would say the exploration is around looking at ourselves. Is it more painful for me to hold back being compassionate for that other person saying, Oh, why should I do it for them if they're not doing it for Mm -hmm, me? mm -hmm. And I'll give a little bit of background for this, but that's the question that that we can kind of hold as Mm -hmm, we go through mm -hmm. this is, is it, does it, does it feel even on an experiential level, does it feel better or worse when we are holding back on compassion? And this goes back to these survival mechanisms where our brains are basically set up, you know, there's a part of our brain called the orbitofrontal cortex that actually determines and stores reward value. So for example, if I eat uh, milk chocolate, 
my brain compares that to other things that I've eaten, like broccoli. And it's like, oh, I'm mm-hmm. chocolate, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> or then if I eat some dark chocolate, then it's like, okay, dark chocolate goes up higher up on the hierarchy. And so it sets up this whole reward hierarchy in terms of what, how to make decisions. Because it's like, well, when given a choice between broccoli, milk chocolate, and dark chocolate, <laughs> like dark chocolate. And I agree so, with that. <laughs> yeah, okay, we're on the same page. So in the same way, we can look to see how, what it feels like when we turn away versus turn toward. We can see what it feels like when we hold back on compassion versus when we let it loose, no matter who it is. And we can see what it, what it actually feels like experientially. And for me, I mean, this has been a great exploration, especially with learning loving kindness and things like this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's a no-brainer mm-hmm. <laughs> for, for our brains. And, and I'll, I'll, give a, I'll give an example. Um, I remember when I was training, I was in residency training uh, in, uh, for, to become a psychiatrist, and I would ride my bike to the hospital. And, um, you know, some cars would honk at me or whatever, and I would notice, you know, I might give them a universal sign of displeasure or something like that. Um, on my way to the hospital or do something, you know, to kind of get them because I deserve to be on the road. I pay my taxes, whatever. Mm -hmm. And I would get to the hospital and I would be, you know, not in a good place to see patients. Mm -hmm. And and then I I tried playing with loving kindness. And so when I, when they honked at me, it was kind of like my loving kindness bell. Mm -hmm. And I would um, offer first myself a phrase of loving kindness, like, you know, may I be happy. And then I would offer them a wish, a well wish. Um, and it was, I got to, it was so different. Like it just felt so much better, you know, like, mm-hmm. oh, maybe they're having a tough day or maybe, you know, whatever. Maybe I didn't signal when I was turning, whatever. And it just felt so much better when I was practicing kindness than when I wasn't. Mm-hmm. And then I realized I didn't have to wait for them to honk. Right. <laughs> so, oh, Yeah. <laughs> So then I would just, you know, I'd get to the hospital and people are like, man, what are you smoking? <laughs> uh-huh, right. All right. Hi, I'm loving kindness. Thank you very much. Uh, and I think the same is true for compassion. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if somebody is lashing out at me, it's much easier now to turn toward them because it's just painful to turn away and to like put up my defenses and, and come back with like, well, you don't deserve this or you know, whatever, as compared to, man, you know, the conditions that led to, to you thinking that I don't have the right to exist must have really sucked. Yeah. Um, because that, that's all I can, you know, I can't imagine anything else because our natural capacity is toward openness and connection. That's just how we're built as human beings. Mm-hmm. And from a reward-based learning standpoint, it feels better. I mean, you, I don't need to tell you this. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 it's great. <laughs> no, that's great. And, I, you know, I want to get into, uh, in a moment, reward-based learning system because this was really fascinating. And I, I'll just say that one thing I always try to emphasize in teaching loving kindness is that it doesn't make you powerless. You know, it doesn't mean that you're just going to agree with somebody or lie down and take it. You know, it's like uh, you you can take a stand and you can have principles and you can fight but not necessarily from a place of hatred, which will actually um, destroy you in the end. So Yeah. Yeah, and absolutely. That, all that energy has become self-destructive as compared to we could channel that energy in a positive way uh, if we're not caught in the, in the hatred. It's, it's exhausting to be yeah, angry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really is. Very tiring. Yeah. Um, so the reward-based learning system um, is... I think a powerful thing to understand and uh, we can talk about your book some here as well, which would be really interesting. And, and just um, the role of mindfulness, because I, I think often we don't even know we live in such a dream, you know, we hardly even know what's making us happy or what's bringing, lifting us up or what's bringing us down. And, and, and that's a really powerful place to begin is to pay attention. It is. It is. Uh, so I'm, I can just 
grow, the learn, reward-based learning is actually pretty simple. If, if mm-hmm. you want me to just describe yeah, it. Yeah, please do. Uh, it, at its simplest, it has three elements. There's a, a trigger, a behavior, and a result or a reward in brain speak. And it was set up probably for survival to help us remember where food is. So there's a, you know, we see the food, we eat the food, and then our stomach sends this dopamine signal to our brain that says, remember what you ate and where you found it. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting historically because dopamine is really there to help us remember things and to motivate behavior. Uh, a lot of people talk about it being this happiness molecule, but it's mm-hmm. not actually, you know, my patients, when they're jonesing for cocaine, mm-hmm. they're not that happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they describe it in terms of paranoia, and, you know, when they're using and they go, mm-hmm. get paranoid. And um, it's, there's a restless quality, there's an agitated quality, and as you described before, there's this driven quality when we're craving mm-hmm. something. So I'm not sure where happiness got associated with this stuff, but it was mm-hmm. actually there to help mm-hmm. us motivate behavior, basically move toward food sources. But in modern day, that gets co-opted when food is plentiful and we learn to eat when we're sad or we learn to eat when we're bored or we learn to uh, get angry at people when they cut us off in traffic. Mm -hmm. Same system is at play, but we learn to associate different stimuli, not based on on physical survival, but based on basically our subjective biases where we you know, we become identified with, oh, I'm, I'm of this political persuasion, or <laughs> I like dark chocolate. Why are you offering me milk mm-hmm. chocolate? You know, <laughs> you know, I like dark chocolate. <laughs> What's wrong with you? <laughs> As compared yeah. to, oh, you're offering me chocolate. Thank you. <laughs> right. <laughs> Don't you know me? <laughs> really? And that's all about being caught up in, uh, you know, being attached to a particular sense of self, you know, being identified with certain behaviors. And so this reward-based learning moves from survival to becoming, you know, forming this identity of who we think we are, which, as you know, in the Buddhist psychology Mm -hmm. is problematic. Attachment to views, attachment to a sense of a fixed sense of self uh, causes, you know, these cause suffering. So that's that's reward-based learning in a nutshell. And the the nice thing here is if we know how it works, if we know how our minds work, we can work with our minds. And so it's not like we're going to come in and do something radically different. What we're going to do is come in and really understand how our minds work. Mm -hmm. And this is where awareness comes in. So I would argue, and what my lab has found, is that we actually just need that um, element kind, curious awareness. And so we can bring awareness to the cause and effect relationship between that behavior and the result. Mm -hmm. Because reward-based learning, so trigger behavior reward, that reward-based learning is based uh, on rewards, not on the behavior itself. You know, if we, if it were just based on the behavior, we wanted to stop smoking, we'd just stop smoking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It doesn't work that way. But if we help people pay attention to the results, that cause and effect relationship, and they pay attention, for example, when they smoke, they realize, oh, smoking doesn't taste that good, and they start to become disenchanted simply mm-hmm. through awareness. So it's not like they're telling themselves to do something different or changing you know, the negative to a positive. They're simply paying attention. And in essence, that drives us to become disenchanted with these old behaviors, which then, you know, the reward value drops. Mm-hmm. Um, and our orbital frontal cortex says, oh, that's not that rewarding. Give me something more rewarding. And then we can say, okay, how about awareness itself and mm-hmm. curiosity uh, or interest when we're truly interested in what's happening? Or how about loving kindness? Mm. How does that feel compared to being, you know, craving or going on social media to try to find you know, some connection, you know, when we're, we're that rat pressing the lever for that mm-hmm. next, you know, that next social media hit as compared to just resting in the feeling of loving kindness, you know, even for ourselves, it feels better. And so we can actually hack into that reward-based learning system itself simply with practices of awareness and of kindness. 
And so it, it's actually relatively simple, and it taps into the strongest learning system known in science. You know, it's much stronger than our self-control systems. Those are much younger from an evolutionary perspective. They're the, they're the first ones that go offline when we're stressed out, so we can't really even trust them. Mm. But we can trust these older, though not always wiser unless we know how they work, but we can trust these older systems simply by injecting and training ourselves to be aware and kind. So it's really amazing because, um, you know, that whole um, second foundation of mindfulness, of feeling tone, of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality, that is, it's such an ancient uh, perspective on mindfulness. And and it's really what you're talking about, <laughs> you know, that it's not a small yeah. thing to feel. And this is also interesting. It's not a small thing to feel the pain of something. You know, we yeah. might be meditating and it's painful and we think, oh, this is a waste of time or I'm doing it wrong. But it's important. It's important to to feel that craving and feel the um, attachment or feel the fear, feel the anger. And to recognize it's not bad or wrong or terrible. It's painful. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I remember being on a, I think it was a month-long retreat at the, at the, at the Force Refuge, actually, mm -hmm. and just watching pleasant leading to craving and unpleasant. So I'd have whatever pleasant thoughts, and then I would have these unpleasant thoughts, and they would lead to, a, lead to aversion. And I realized that the, that, that contracted quality mm -hmm. was shared with, you know, they were just kind of like a, the opposite, you know, uh, one was negative and one was positive, but they it felt the same way. Yeah, and I remember yeah. going up to the teacher saying, did you know? That? And they're like, yeah, <laughs> but that was such an essential teaching for me to see, oh, pleasant, not a problem, unpleasant, not a problem. But watching them fall into, oh, pleasant, I want more, unpleasant, get this out of here. And then my mind scrambling to hold on to the pleasant or to push away the unpleasant and how much energy and contraction and work and just, whoa, it, I don't that's the technical term, whoa. <laughs> um, how that felt was just really, it was just so illuminating. Um, and then watching that drive the process saying, oh, I want more, I want more, I want more as compared to here's pleasant and just being with the pleasant as it came and go. Right. Here's unpleasant. It was, it was so helpful in, in helping me see how that, that mind process worked. And as you pointed out, <laughs> yeah, the Buddha figured this out before paper was invented. <laughs> Yay, Buddha. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so interesting, you know, because um, it can sound so simple on the surface, but uh, yet is so important. And I think about, um, you know, this is a quote, which... Uh, I w was using my book, and it was very funny because uh, I I read the sort. I I thought the quote was something like, which we're you know all familiar with, something like, um, if you are generating hatred, then you're like somebody who's drinking poison trying to kill the other guy, you know. And and said a little more elegantly than that, but I thought, oh, I think the Buddha said that. So, but the Buddha. Is not well. It's it's attributed to the Buddha, um, Mahatma Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, uh, AA, uh, you know, uh, Oprah Winfrey. I mean, I read all these attributions online, and I don't know who said it. Um, maybe it's just sense, but that's one of the reasons that um, a generation or a cultivation of mindfulness can lead to changed behavior, which some people question in this day and age. Um, uh, thinking of mindfulness as maybe just concentrating or focusing more. But because one sees the painful consequence of certain actions or attitudes, um, something inside us shifts because we don't want to be that miserable, really. Yeah, And so... Yeah. <laughs> There is something about uh, recognizing the internal consequence as well as the external consequence of things we cherish and where we put our energy and what we're devoted to. And um, that does change our behavior. It changes our priorities. Yes. Uh, you know, I couldn't agree more. And I, I think I, I see this a lot. I wonder if you do as well, where people are 
kind of getting instruction or, or um, this idea that mindfulness is about learning to focus. Mm-hmm. Well, the you know, the historical Buddha, he was a master focuser, but that didn't get him enlightened. Right. And he started looking at cause and effect. And so this is about learning how, you know, what the consequences of our actions are. Yeah. And by learning what's painful, like disconnection, hatred, anger, whatever, we naturally stop doing those things. That's apparently how, you know, he got enlightened was seeing that cause and effect relationship. So I'm so glad you bring that up. And it, I, I love how it fits with the, the modern day science kind of rediscovering this stuff mm-hmm. you know, 2,600 years later. No, it's really great. So we're drawing toward the end of our time. Um, do you want to lead us in a, a short meditation practice? Sure, I'd be happy to. And let's see, we could just kind of do this on the fly related to what we talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe we can start with you know, whoever's listening, um, if you're driving, I wouldn't recommend. <laughs> Keep your eyes <laughs> open. Your eyes. Uh, but assuming somebody's in a safe place, uh, just finding a comfortable posture that supports alertness and awakeness. And maybe just grounding in the body. You know, there's been a lot that we've been unpacking cognitively. So just notice what it's like to kind of be up in your head or maybe excited about some of these concepts. And just let all of that settle down into the body. Just notice what the body feels like, you know, sitting, standing, walking, wherever we are, lying down. Maybe connecting with the breath for a cycle or two. And then maybe as a way to start, similar to what you talked about, Sharon, is let's explore the opposite of connection or kindness. So think of a time recently when, you know, we felt disconnected from ourselves or from somebody else, whether somebody said something that we disagreed with or maybe told us that our idea wasn't, you know, wasn't good or we got in a disagreement about something, just notice, kind of bring that scenario to mind and just notice what it feels like in the body when we're disconnected. Notice what it feels like and where you feel it. And then just letting that fade, reconnecting with the body, the breath. Just remembering a time when we were connected with that person or with ourselves, where we truly felt like somebody understood us, or we truly felt like we understood them. We were just so engaged in a conversation, we lost all sense of time. Or even just a, you know, knowing glance, like, I get you. I feel what that feels like. Just rest in that feeling, noticing that this is always available. And how this feels so different from being disconnected. And that anytime we feel disconnected, we can just simply bring awareness to that moment. Oh, what's it feel like to be disconnected? And then recall what it feels like to be connected and see what happens even in that moment of recollection. Can that help us embody that feeling of connection 
And I really like a simple practice or technique. Uh, I don't even call it a technique. Something that can help us turn toward our experience of disconnection, which is curiosity or interest. I love the little mantra. Hmm. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm disconnected. Hmm. What does this feel like as we turn toward that experience? Hmm. As we open to it, as we're truly interested in what's actually happening. And seeing if we can bow to as a teacher. Oh, what can I learn from this? How can I learn about how my mind works? What's the cause and effect relationship? As we truly map out this mental territory and really see what it's like when we're disconnected versus connected, trusting that our minds will take care of the rest as we see the true cause and effect relationship. That open, warm, connected quality when we're truly turning toward ourselves, our thoughts, our emotions, the people around us as compared to being disconnected. How's that? Wow, thank you. (laughs) That's great. So, I like that mantra. (laughs) That's really good. Mm. (laughs) Thank you for joining me today. If you'd like to learn more about Judd's work, you can visit his website at www.drjud.com. And I encourage you to purchase a copy of his book, The Craving Mind which can be found anywhere that books are sold. Thank you. Hey folks, thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at SharonSalzberg.com.